The reading is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 19, starting at verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is in the spirit of prophecy. Here ends the first reading. The Holy Gospel is written in the second chapter of the Gospel according to St. John, beginning at the first verse. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we are told this morning that in this story, Jesus reveals his glory to his disciples and to us. Father, we pray this morning that you would indeed reveal the glory of Jesus to us as we look together at this well-known story. Open our eyes afresh, we pray, Father. Warm our hearts that we, like the disciples, may put our faith in Jesus today. Amen. Well, weddings can be tricky things to organize. Uh, I got married almost three years ago myself, and I can still remember uh, the, the plans that you have to put in place to get married. There's 
the wedding list to sort out. There's the venue, um, the speaker, and, and, and the, um, the, the clergy to sort out. There's the, the menu and the band and um, all kinds of things to sort out. It can be uh, quite a daunting prospect. It's true today, and it was true 2,000 years ago as well. As we look at this famous story in John's Gospel, we see that weddings can be tricky things to organize and to plan well. Initially, it seems that things were going well for this particular wedding in our story this morning. Um, the, the couple had managed to find a venue for the wedding. We're told that in verse 1, it was taking place in Cana in Galilee. So that's the first box ticked. We find out in verse 2 that the, the couple had managed to get together a wedding list. So we're told that Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. They, they had that also in place. So th- things were coming together for the wedding. And it seemed to be going well until we get to verse 3, when things start to go wrong on the special day. Verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. To run out of wine at a, at a wedding banquet was a massive mistake. It didn't look good um, for the hosts who were inviting their guests to come and join with them in this celebration, it, it implied that they were stingy, that they had underplanned for the guests. So it was a potentially embarrassing moment for the whole gathering, particularly the hosts. And so uh, the mother of Jesus acts quickly to try to avoid the embarrassment, and she turns to Jesus. Uh, we don't quite know what she expected him to do. Uh, we're told this was the first miraculous sign Jesus had performed, so she we don't think we'd, she'd seen a miracle done by Jesus yet, but she had some instinct that he could sort it out, that he knew how to deal with this problem. After a brief discussion with his mother, Jesus steps forward and he does a wonderful miracle. He converts the water into wine and the wedding banquet is able to progress with, uh, without embarrassment to the hosts and to the, and to the happy couple. And so at one level, we... We see here the first miracle of Jesus. He is powerful. He can convert water into wine. And that is impressive. I, I couldn't do that, and I'm sure none of us here this morning could do that. It is, in one sense, a, a sign of his power. This is a special man who has arrived. This is the first day of his public ministry, and it starts with power. But in what sense can we say in verse 11 that he thus revealed his glory. And why did his disciples put their faith in him? Is it just that he is showing off that he has some power, he can do party tricks and convert water into wine? I mean, that is impressive. But what is going on behind the scenes here, beneath the service, such that John can say, at this point in time, Jesus reveals his glory and his disciples put their faith in him? What is going on here this morning? That that is a question I want us to explore together here. How does Jesus reveal his glory at this wedding? Well, we're told in verse 11 that what he did was a sign, a miraculous sign. And we know how signs work, don't we? So um, after Christmas, I was driving up to Edinburgh to, to eat Christmas dinner with my parents and as you drive up the M6, you find these road signs, you know, 100 miles to Manchester and then eventually 100 miles to Edinburgh, you know you're getting close. 
And you know how signs work. Signs point to a destination. They are not in themselves a destination. So I was looking forward to a lovely Christmas dinner with my family. But when I saw the sign saying 100 miles to Edinburgh, I knew that if I pulled over on the motorway and looked for the dinner, the Christmas dinner there, I wouldn't find the Christmas dinner at the signpost. I had to look beyond to where the sign was pointing. The sign told me, just wait 100 miles, keep driving, and you will come to a fantastic Christmas dinner. And, I, and indeed I did, it was lovely. But I mean, it's an obvious point to make, but that's how signs work. They, in themselves, they are not the goal, but they point to something far greater, something in the future, in the distance. And John says, this was the first miraculous sign that Jesus performed. This sign is pointing us somewhere else, somewhere in the future, something to a far greater reality than simply turning water into wine. So what, how is this sign working? What, what are we meant to look for beyond this story? Well, I've got, I've got four clues from the passage that will help us work this out. I guess you could say four points, but I'm not going to claim there are points. We've only got ten minutes. Four points, four clues to help us understand the sign that we find in this passage. The first point is there in verse 6. We're told, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus doesn't pick any old jug or, or water vessel to use to convert water into wine. He, he picks, we're told, jars that were used for ceremonial washing. No accident, I think. These jars were used by the Jews as they cleansed themselves before meals and rituals to purify themselves as part of the Old Testament teaching on sacrifices and rituals and outward ways of cleansing the Jews. And yet in our story, Jesus takes these ceremonial washing jars and he puts them to a different use. He converts their function from ceremonial washing to, to something else. And that's our first clue. He, he changes the function of the ceremonial jars. The second clue is that Jesus turns water into wine. Well, that's, a, that's an obvious point to make, but he could have done something else. He could have, um, I don't know, opened a door using his mind, or, or he could have converted a chair into a stick, or he could have done all kinds of miracles to show off his power, but he cho- chose to turn water into wine. And in the Bible, wine is a loaded metaphor. It is not just a, any old everyday uh, object. It is something special. In the Old Testament, wine was a sign of God's blessing, and the prophets look forward to a day in the future when God would pour out his wine on his people as a sign that the new age had come, that the end was coming to their sin and their sorrow and their exile. So just for example, a quick reading from Amos 9 to help us see how the prophets used wine. Amos 9 verse 13 says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman, and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring my exiled people, Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. That is a picture of the future 
that the prophets were longing for. And so I think it is no accident that Jesus begins his ministry by turning water into wine as a sign that the new age had arrived, the age of abundance, the age that the prophets were longing for. That's our second clue. The third clue is this. Jesus doesn't just turn a glass of water into a glass of wine. He, <laughs> he turns a lot of water into a lot of wine. Did you notice that? We're told that the, the, the water jars held 20 to 30 gallons, and there were six of these jars. One commentator worked out that in today's currency, there's enough wine here to fill some 700 to 1,000 bottles of wine. That is a huge amount of wine to go for. And I think the point is simple. It is an abundance of wine. It is overflowing. It is, it is beyond the need of the wedding banquet. It is just generous and bounteous. And that fits, I think, with this Old Testament view of, of that day coming when God would pour out the wine. It would overflow and be bounteous. So we've got the, the ceremonial jars. We've got the water to wine. We've got this generous outpouring of wine. What does it all mean? What, what are these signs pointing towards? Well, I think the final clue uh, is there in verse four. Dear woman, Jesus says to his mother, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. In John's gospel, we find that the whole gospel is leading to the time when when Christ is glorified by being crucified on a cross. So in, in John 10, as Jesus begins the final week before his crucifixion, we're told his time has now come to be crucified. And I think as he begins his ministry, he says to his mother, my time to die has not yet come, but I'm going to do a miracle now to show you where it's all going. I'm going to give you a sign now to show you what's going to happen when the time does come. And it's his death that is the fulfillment, that is the time. So putting all these clues together, the message is this. This carpenter, this man Jesus, this man born in a little town called Nazareth in Galilee, well, from Nazareth in Galilee, this man, as he begins his ministry, turns out to be the one the prophets were longing for. He is God's Messiah. He is the rescuer, the one who will usher in a new age, an, an age of hope and of joy and of blessing. He is indeed glorious, and he is the one we must put our faith in. As we come in just a moment to share together the Lord's Supper, as we break, wine and, uh, break bread and drink wine together, we remember the events that took place at the time when the time was fulfilled. We think about how Jesus came to wash us, not of our external filth, but of our internal filth, the sin in our hearts. We no longer need to wash ourselves with water, but trust in Jesus. And when we do so, we have the joy of entering into his family, the joy of forgiveness, the joy of that wedding banquet we read about in Revelation 19 coming before us, where there'll be wine and food abounding. This first miracle is a sign pointing us forward to the death of Jesus and to the fruit of his death, the new age, the age of bounty in Christ. As we finish, just some thoughts on application. 
Uh, it's there in verse 11. Uh, his disciples put their faith in him. It's an obvious application, but that is the call for us this morning. I'm sure many of us have been Christians here for many years. But being a Christian means waking up each day, each week, and making a fresh decision to put our faith in Jesus. Because there is no one other, there's no one else who can make sense of our lives, who can bring security and peace and forgiveness and meaning to our lives. He is the glorious one. He is the one to put our faith in. We must not allow our gaze to, to, to shift from Jesus and to put our trust in our routines, in our, our strategies, in our own resourcefulness. There will be times like the host at the banquet when we are out of our depth. We have come to the end of our resources. We have nothing left. And we must sit back and let Jesus step forward and show us that he is the one we must trust in. That is the application for us today, to put our faith in the glorious one, in Jesus himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the ministry of Jesus, for his life, his death, and his resurrection. We thank you that in him the new age has come, the age of wine outpoured, of, of cleansing from sin, of joy and celebration. Father, show us where in our lives we have let our trust shift away from Jesus. Help us this morning to put our hopes, our joys, our security afresh in your glorious Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.